Hello, I'm Frida Morrison and a warm welcome to Scots Radio. It may be cold outside, but in this special Christmas programme we'll radiate warmth through the festive season. And on that note, let me introduce our soon sorter, the manny that steers the ship through the soon waves, <laughs> Richie Warner. <laughs> OK, listen, aye. are you ready for Christmas? Of course I'm ready for Christmas. Ah, <laughs> two twawee daughters in the house and you're ready for Christmas. Do I sound like I'm ready for Christmas? No, not really. No. OK, sleep deprivation, Utatien, if it's happening. That's definitely what that was, wasn't it? Aye. Aye. Sleep deprivation? Oh, every night. <laughs> OK. <laughs> you cooking for Christmas this year? Oh, every year, aye. Can He's a good cook. Oh, is a good cook. All right. Okay, let's just get into the festive mood. One then. Okay, this is for an album card. Frost on the fiddles, Richie. Frost, Frost on, on the, the fiddles. It, it's a Finnish band card. Frigg. Good idea for your Santa stocking. This is Kesset Kakalasa.
Craig uh, for their album Frost on the Fiddles, and that was a track called Kiss It Kirkalasa. Great start. Now, I'm not going to hang about, nay that idea, a lot of that. I may want her about, but we're not about to hang about. Richie, we're not, we didn't like hanging about. I didn't like hanging about. No, we didn't like hanging about. But I need to talk a wee bit of time to draw your attention to the fact that Richie has hoovered the studio. <laughs> Just in time for Christmas! And that I means in most homes we hang visitors. That's it. And we are, and we have. It gives me great pleasure to introduce our visitor. It's near Santa Richie, come you saying. Oh. It's our new member of the team. Dun, dun, dun. The new loon. Welcome, new Alistair Heather. Woo. <laughs> Hiya, Frida. Hiya, Richie. How's then? It's half a fun to hear. You've been with us almost just a year. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's the first time we've had you in the studio. Now, you've survived the year. You've been out and gone about. Uh, and we've enjoyed seeing you on Vision. And, of course, we've got to mention Josh Bertram, the cameraman, IT manager. Josh is going to be joining us later on. And you can see Ali on Vision on our webpage, www.scotsradio.com. And, of course, your conversations with folk in this programme. Fit by points. Fit by points. Mm-hmm. Healing show you've been at, Ali. Robert Burns and the Royal Mile. with uh, Lots of other folk in that. And you had half a busy year. And this month, seasonal theme, you've been looking at the snow-covered Cairngorm Mountains, not just the climb, but in particular, putting together a portrait of the internationally renowned Aberdeen writer, Nan Shepherd, 1893-1981, and her spiritual connection with the mountains. So, we felt for a while that Nan Shepherd had been kind of neglected, but that's our change new, Ali. You're near Ang. Aberdeen as a city was guilty of neglecting most of its kind of famous quines. There's statues all over the place, eh? William Wallace, Rabbi Burns, Lord Byron, Lord Gordon, are they kind of folk. But there's nothing to do with the Ken Speckle lasses that had come for the Granite mm-hmm. City. Um, thanks to things like Pitner on the Fiver, the new biography the that came out, Into the Mountain, on the Fiver, exactly that. Mm-hmm. Um, Nan Shepherd has come to a bit more uh, prominence, well, re-prominence. She was, she was real Kent of four, but she's coming back to prominence. And a lot of that is centred around Aberdeen University. Oh. So you hear folk like Helen Lynch, who I will speak to later on in the programme, <laughs> doing Helen. great things around her. Uh, but we also hear Professor Ali Lumsden, who is uh, the chair of English at the University of Aberdeen. But she's also a lossy quine. We are her right in the northeast, And she's devoting herself to making the works in Nan Shepherd better Kent. Not just in the university course where she's taught, but also out in the northeast community. So we met up with her on campus, Nancy Langsine, to do this wee interview and hear about what she's doing. So why was Nan Shepherd? Well, why was Nan Shepherd? That's a really good question. And if you'd asked people in Aberdeen that question a few years ago, they would, nobody would have cared anything about Nan Shepherd. But now that Nan Shepherd's on the £5 note, nobody wants to find out about her. And a lot of the reason for that is the um, Living Mountain, her meditation and walking in the Cairngorms has been reprinted and republished a lot of attention. And so new folk want to care for Nan Shepherd was, and who is this woman on the money? The University of Aberdeen's an awfully multicultural campus. What do the students in your class make of the Doric in Nan Shepherd's work? Well, some of them find it quite challenging. There's no doubt about that. Um, but once they get into it, they usually get on nice bad. It's often nice so much the international students who find it difficult because by definition, they're students who are working in a second language anyway, so they're used to doing that. They're probably students who are good at picking up language, so they can um, find that nay too bad. 
arrange students for a whole loads of reasons may hear resistance to actually reading stuff in Doric. And that may not be because they find the language difficult, but it may be for a whole lot of other reasons that they have a resistance to that. But once they get into it and they find a way into it, I don't think they find it too difficult at all. One of the things I always try and do with the students is to point out that there's lots of books they may read in Scots, mm -hmm. but this is very specifically North East Scots or Doric, and that they can tell that because shepherds use in fit and fa and words like that, which you'd only find that form of pronunciation in the North East. And hence the students realise that, I think they begin to mark connections with the language they're hearing around about them, that might be hearing on the bus or for folk in shops. And then that seems like a, a live-in thing and they just something that's on the page. I think hence they get that idea, they actually really quite like that and they engage with it more. The first couple of pages of, of the quarry would quite dense, North East Scots and Aunt Josephine, and I think that's, you know, it ticks you straight in there, it's quite challenging at the outset. But once you get into the text, it's near as dense as, as, as the opening is. And in some ways, I think that's because Shepherd says to herself that she'll use a Scots word when it's the best word, near just because it's the sake of using Scots. Mm -hmm. So... In that sense, I don't think she's a language activist in the same way as some of the other writers of the Scottish Renaissance, maybe like um, Chris Grieve. It's mere, uh, this is language, and I'm interested in language, and I'll use the best word to say if I want to say. I'd like to speak to you now, and then Nan Shepherd as a macker. Mm -hmm. Tell me a bit about what role poetry played in her life. Well, I think writing and reading were absolutely central to all things she did. She's a keen reader. We've got some more notebooks. We can see that she's talking notes. She's writing, doing bits of poetry from other folks' poetry in amongst sometimes her own poetry. And that's quite hard because you're thinking, well, fits her and fits somebody <laughs> else. Um, so she's absolutely central to, to everything that, that she believed and that she did. And that when students who were taught by her, say, at, at the training college for teachers, what they I would speak about is the sense in which the, she gave them a love of literature and what she wanted to do was give them that love of literature. So I think reading and by extension her own writing were really important to her, but they were also quite private to her. I think she, they weren't the things that she wanted to go about saying, you know, I'm a writer and that's how I want to be thought of. Um, she actually kept it as quite a private thing because there's the story of Jessie Kesson meeting her on the train and she has this lovely conversation with Jessie Kesson and, and then she's Supports Jessie Kesson to be a writer herself. But Jessie Kesson's recollection of it is that when um, Nan Shepherd got off the train, she didn't again, it was Nan Shepherd the writer. You know, Nan Shepherd never said, I'm Nan Shepherd the writer, kind of mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think there were bits of her life that she kept quite separate as well. What would you say the relevance is of her work of the day? And what legacies does she have in the North East and in Scotland more broadly? Oh, I think, I think it's huge. I, I think folks should be going back reading our work because what they would find is that the things she's dealing with, particularly women in education, why, what the purpose of arts education is at all, its value, the purpose of women in education, the challenges that women maybe meet in the workplace or in the other aspects of their life, female friendships, all those kinds of questions that still are pro they're probably more relevant than they were for a while, actually, sadly. So, you know, I think it's a, a point where folks should be going back and reading Shepherd again and seeing how relevant that is and what mm. it can say to us now about female experience. But also, I think one of the things that's really important for the North East is what Nan Shepherd does in her work is she 
um, emphasises the importance of the local and the regional, if we want to put it like that. But, you know, there's, there's uh, a line in the quarry wood where Martha looks up place and sort of says, this place is good as any other. You can that sense that if you're looking for life experience, you don't hate Gawa to find it, that it's here. And there's as much to be found in the northeast of Scotland as there is anywhere else. And that doesn't mean you wouldn't want to travel. Non-Shepherd travelled a lot. Uh, but we shouldn't forget the local and our own place and the value in that for telling us about experience. Professor Ali Lumsden from Aberdeen University speaking to my guest, Alistair Heather, about Nan Shepherd. This is a track from a special Christmas archive. This is another Aberdeenshire quine, Annie Lennox singing In the Bleak Midwinter. No 
beautiful. Annie Lennox singing In the Bleak Midwinter for her Christmas album Cornucopia. You're listening to Scots Radio. This is our special Christmas edition, and with me is our reporter, Alistair Heather, and our soon sorter, Richie Werner, with his special festive spirit. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> We're speaking about Aberdeen writer Nan Shepherd in this programme. Uh, I wrote extensively about the Cairngorm Mountains and her life in the mountains. Books you would recommend, Ali? How would you start with? Well, I took the same gate in as most folk. I discovered Nan through The Living Mountain, oh, her office short meditation on the Cairngorms. Mm-hmm. What's accessible that is, it's only about 90 pages or so, so you can sit down with a hale afternoon and just get through it. After that, there's a lot to discover, starting with her, uh, her book The Quarry Wood, which is a novel set in the Mairns. Now, I should mention at this point, we're going to hear from Josh later on. Josh does our IT management stuff and our, a lot of the filming. Josh has been up in the Cairngorm Mountains making a special film. And we've got extracts, Fade the Living Mountain, on, on part of that film as well. But we'll say more about that later. And as I said earlier, there has been a feeling that the work on Anne Shepherd has now really been celebrated a lot, even in our native northeast. But that's changing, Ali. I certainly is. So we're hearing from Ali Lumsden there. Any Ali's colleagues at the University of Aberdeen is Dr Helen Lynch. She's a senior lecturer. And just to preface this, just if out Ken, Helen sounds like she's straight out of Kensington. <laughs> she, <laughs> she is. She is, isn't she? She's, she's got a bonny voice, though. It's bonny. She's been in the northeast for her youngs, and she's the beating her to a lot of the good stuff that happens there. She's implicated with Scottish culture and traditions. She plays in just about every session with the whistles and the smart pipes. And she is now helping launch a new prize for young screevers, mm-hmm. the Nan Shepherd Prize for Nature Writing. Oh, great. So she's got funding for five years, and she's going to tell us all about it. It's called the Nan Shepherd Prize for Nature Writing um, and the idea is to get, in the first instance, young folk from age 16 to 18, so young writers, maybe people doing creative writing as part of their hires or their advanced hires, to write uh, pieces of work either in English or Scots uh, inspired partly by the work of Nan Shepherd or inspired by the countryside uh, of the North East which inspired Nan Shepherd's poetry and her and her prose. It's been run through the, through the Department of English uh, with my colleague Professor Lumsden and Dr Baker, and also my creative writing colleagues Wayne Price and David Wheatley. So we're uh, joining together to create this prize and to to organise the judging of this prize and to go out to schools and to get folk working on this uh, enterprise. It's called the Nan Shepherd Prize for Nature Writing, partly because Nan Shepherd was particularly uh, dedicated to to education and to and to educating young folk. And the idea is to elicit writing that's based around meditating on the landscape, on thinking about landscape, re-engaging with the landscape, and being inspired by the landscape of the northeast of Scotland in the way that Nan Shepherd was in her novels and in her poetry. So can I infer that if you're saying re-engage? and in the way that Nan Shepherd connected with nature, that the bairns of the day aren't connected with nature in the same way Nan Shepherd was, and there's a need for a re-engagement. That, that might be true. I mean, there's obviously an emphasis on walking and being outside as part of mental health and, and things like this. But I wouldn't necessarily say that folk who grew up in the northeast aren't engaged with their landscape, but actually thinking of it as something that they can write about and that they can write about in a unique way because the landscape is unique and possibly also the language in which they might want to write about it is unique is something that certainly Nan Shepherd would approve of and that we really want to encourage. So tell us more about the Scots language side. What do you hope to achieve there? 
Well, I think, I mean, this is, I don't want to make a, a kind of generalisation, but it seems to me that's, that Doric has a really strong tradition in, in comic writing. Um, and, you know, poets like Sheena Black will show that there's a huge range of things you can do in Doric, um, not just song um, or ballad or, or yeah, this kind of comic or the memoir. Um, you, you can be writing contemporary interactive inspired verse or prose about things that are right bang up to the minute and right close to your heart and that are right are about now and and people living in the northeast of scotland now and i think that's what we hope will come out of this in some way or other well, ideally what we'd like is that a, a lot of um, young folk become more aware of the work of Nan Shepherd, not least, and also more aware of the, the ways that they might be able to engage not only with their landscape, but with, with expressing what they feel about it and, and observing it and thinking that creative writing might be something that you can, you know, it's not just something you do for a portfolio at school. It's also something that can become part of your life and that can lead to obviously cash prizes and publicity and, and, a, and a future pathway into producing creative and imaginative work. How did the money come for Well, the previous uh, principal of Aberdeen University uh, was very committed to uh, creative writing, and as is, as is the current principal, and um, as part of his legacy when he left, the, the uh, Three and Diamond decided that he would, he would give money for a prize for at least five years for the, in, in the first instance to get this up and running and to try and raise the profile of creative writing at Aberdeen and for Aberdeenshire for the for the whole region um, through through Nan Shepherd and her association with this institution. Well Dr Lynch thanks very much good luck with the prize all thank the best you. to you. Thank you very much and yeah looking forward to reading all that wonderful work. <laughs> we'll Dean Yon Quine Dr Helen Lynch gives you hope. This is a track for Corinne Paulbert's new CD, Laws of Motion. This is Young Man or a Mountain. Yellow on the wind, you dig the little seedlings into Monaco Glen. Spruce and seri drinks. Of little soldier trees march up towards the bend. A shotgun splits the sky, in ammo boots you're running like a pheasant through the Apennines. And the heather disappears till the hills are scored with olive groves in behind the Gothic line. You're in your
Kareen Palmert from her new album, Laws of Motion. You're listening to Scots Radio, our special Christmas edition. And with me is Richard Werner and Ali Heather, our new team member. And we've been speaking about writer Nan Shepherd, Ali, and her writing and spiritual attachment with the Cairngorm Mountains. The mountains, I have to put in now, may look bonny, but we hereby remind you that you've got to go into the mountains with caution and the right equipment. Mm. That's uh, just that's the reason. Now, countryside advisor Fred Gordon was a member of the Aberdeen Mountain Rescue Team for about 11 years, so he kens a bit about the dangers and the challenges of the mountains. We ken about the challenges of the mountains as well, but maybe speak about that <laughs> in a minute. <laughs> I met up with Fred looking out to a fairly easy hill, favourite with walkers, the Craig and Dark Hill by Ballather and Deeside in Aberdeenshire. Fred talks us through the safety points. Anything you've really got to remember at this time of year is the unpredictability of the weather. And if you start off and it might be a fine day and you think, oh, this is going to be grand, we're going to have a good day, but you could be halfway there and then the snow might come on, it might rain, the wind can get up, and then all of a sudden, for being a fine day out, you're in trouble. Right. Advice. Uh, This is just bricks and mortar. Fit the folk, talk with them. You have to have the right clays on to start with. So, good pair of beets, uh, waterproof gear in your bag, warm jerseys, maybe a flask with soup or tea, coffee, and of course, the right map and compass. Aye, maps and compasses. I just think that uh, things that uh, folk just forget, maps and compasses. Well, the thing is, not only have you got to have them with you, you've got to ken for your day with them. And it's amazing how many folk will say, oh, I've got a map and I've got a compass. But when you ask them to look at the map and tell you far they are, mm-hmm. they don't really can far to start. So I think doing your homework before you start is half a battle. Kenning how to 
find your place in the map, Ken, and how to use your, your, your compass and all that kind of thing. But I can folk could say, oh, I've got my mobile phone with me, I'm fine. Well, maybe you might be. But then what happens if your battery runs out? What happens if you're needing a, a signal of some kind and you lose a signal? And what happens if you drop your phone in the burn? It's not going to be an awful lot of good to you. No. So I think it's all very well having your phone and uh, I use a phone myself when I'm going about. But you, you need to have that map and compass in your rucksack and can fit your day meat. And he has rucksack in the first place. Well, up absolutely. Else. You need Nothing. the rucksack. You need the rucksack with you to, to hug your waterproof clays and your balaclava, you maybe a scarf and a, an extra jersey or something. And sometimes a, a, a spare pair of socks if you get your feet mm. over wheat. See, we're sitting, here, we're sitting here uh, looking over at the, the, the hill at Craigendarach. Craigendarach. It looks an easy hill. It doesn't look... A dangerous hill to walk about in, but, you know, come the winter, there'll be a lot of folk in that hill, walking about, on that hill, walking about, and they didn't hear a clue that fit can happen. Well, the thing to remember is we're sitting down here in the, in the park, sitting in this bench, and it's, it's fine and dry, it's windy, but it's dry. But mm. the other thing is, when you get out there, into the, the trees and then up onto the open hill, it's an entirely different environment altogether. It's colour. Every thousand feet digging up, you can be losing two, three degrees. So as you're climbing, it's getting colour. You'll be getting tireder. And, of course, we've also got short days at this time of year. Getting dark. And it'll be getting dark. I mean, here we are, we are in the afternoon here, and it's it's not a particularly fine day. And I wouldn't say it's awful bright even at this time of day. Right. Have you had scary times? Oh, I've had scary times. In scary times, I mind back in the 19, uh, 1960s being in uh, Glen Clover in a whiteout, and that really brought things home to me mm -hmm. about how easy it is to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, we did hear a map and we did hear a compass of sorts, and we were lucky that we found our way down into Glen Calliter. But I, I mind that, I'll never forget that day. Mm -hmm. uh, it would have been so easy just to gee up and get totally lost. Well, just about the same thing happened to me, over the back of the Cairngorm Mountain, in fact. Quite out, couldn't have found out why, got lost, didn't have found out why we were going. Luckily, somebody in the group came to read a compass, and if it hadn't been for that, heaven knows. Well, you are lost, and, and the thing is that you can be totally disoriented. Aye. That time in Glen Calliter that I was speaking about there is that we were standing, there was three of us, and we were standing looking down at what we thought was down into this quarry, and there was a ravine. Now, we took Two steps, and we were at this thing. At it was just a, a wee burn, oh. just in front of us. And then, in the end, we ended up marking a snarbar and mm -hmm. throwing it ahead of us, oh. walking to the snarbar, picking it up, and throwing it ahead of you to find your way off a hill. Ooh. And that's scary. Because <laughs> you were feared you were going to fall through a ravine. Well, because you never can far you are. And uh, when you're standing somewhere on the, on the hill, Far you are is the only place you can, so that's why it's important always can exactly far you are on the map, because at the time that's the only place. So before you move away from that place, you have to can far it is, and you have to can far you're gone. Respect for the mountain. Again, we speak a lot about uh, for Nan Shepherd with kind of spiritual effect of the mountains and I think, but you have to have a very deep respect about. Mountains and the mountain you're in, haven't you? You have, and sometimes knowledge can be a dangerous thing because you, you begin to think, oh, I came for them being here, but no, you're right. 
An accident can happen to anybody. Doesn't matter far you are, fit experience you've got, how long you've been gone to the hills. Anybody can have an accident, get lost at times. But you can make it easier for yourself and for mountain rescue teams and anybody else that has to come out after dark and look for you by kenning the basics about far you're gone and having the right equipment with you to make your life easier. Mm. Fred Gordon on the pleasures of walking in the hills bit with some half a good advice there. Anything can go wrong on the hills and the mountains, so dinner not chances. Alistair, what's your experience with mountain rescue? We have a few experiences there, but I'm fair wee village near that far from the Angus Glens, a village about 200 folk called huh? Newbiggin. Mm-hmm. And my teacher, Mr Henderson, well, was a real character. He was a boy that had uh, cycling to work for Carnoustie every day in shorts, <laughs> rain, sleet or snow. Right. Uh, and now and again the, the school just gets shut. Uh, because Mr Henry would say, sorry, that's somebody tint themselves up in the Cairngorms, I'm off. He'd shut the school, jump into his big old Volvo and just heed for the hills because he was in the mountain rescue team. And you can't find if Mr Henderson's on the case, the boy would probably be fine. Oh, it'd be good. Good on you. OK, bit of music now. This is Alsa Fraser and Natalie Haas with Connie's birthday. Thank you. 
Alistair Fraser and Natalie Haas with Connie's birthday. Now, by the time you hear this programme, we'll have been to the BBC MG Alba Hands Up for Thad Awards and we are nominated for an award in the music and the media category up against the aforementioned Alistair Fraser with the film The Groove Is Not Trivial, Pipelines for BBC Radio Scotland and the National Newspaper. So that's a fair line-up. May the best team win. <laughs> and on that note, time for our traditional Christmas foodie competition. <gasps> Last time we did this, there was a steward's inquiry. Oh, let's not mention that. There was foost on the winning jam. <laughs> foost. I got disqualified. <laughs> <laughs> Richie got disqualified. <laughs> we saw, Richie, what you had foost mm-hmm. in your jam. Well, just to make it taste better. No, you just kind of get a while with that, carry on. So, as the judges, as the, well, the judge, in this case, Joshua Bisham, himself sorts out and sops full. Are you going to start supping? And you can try a pie, Josh. Well, I definitely will. Uh, it looks very appealing. There's a little uh, trickle of juice from the chutney that's reached the pie, so that might uh, <laughs> that might slightly influence the competition. I but I, say well, I won't take. I say nothing. Wouldn't take okay, too much right. of that into account. As you are munching, as you are munching, um, we can just say that this on the lineup for the competition is a homemade pie mm, that mm. Josh is just mm. eating mm. at the moment. Mince and ale straight from Ali Heather's kitchen. Mm. Mm. Right wow. Oh, you really got the flavour spot on there. That's mm-hmm. that. okay. some, some nice mints. We have chutney. Could you now taste the chutney? I think you'll find that's very good. I think I got a wee bit of chutney in the pie, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the chutney fee? The chutney? I don't know. It might be for somebody. Uh, chutney from uh, me. Oh, Jam. Very nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very nice. Jam from uh, our own Richie oh, Wellness finest Garden. Jam in the whole of Scotland. The, the, Thank uh, you very Apple much. Apple Geely Jam. Mm. Right. Are good vintage. Any mince pies here. Any minute now, the judge is going to. He's just summing up. He has just munching. Dun, he's just dun, dun, about dun, to dun, say dun, something. Dun, dun, dun. Any minute now, have oh, you got well. the have has you got the applause? It? Have you got the applause ready? Is he in a coma? Is he he's, all right? He's all right. all right. Okay. So from our very attractive IT manager, uh, the money that does all the filming, Josh Bertram. Can we have a round of applause, please? Yeah! Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, thank you. Oh, too much, too much. <laughs> right. And the verdict is? Well, it was a tight one this year. Um, <laughs> each of them had their own merit. But in the end, I think I'm going to have to give it to the jam. The jam! What? The jam? Hold on, hold on. Can, yeah! we, can we search for fish again? <laughs> the jam? Of course it is. It's riddled with fish. It's like, like blue it... cheese jam. Did she find a new market jam? Uh, it's kind of like last year's. Isn't it? Yay me! I'm amazing! I made jam. I made jam. Come on. He's a swick. <laughs> and the Josh, prize... I'll get that 20 quid after, mate. <laughs> That's it. The you. prize is, what is it? The, the Kit Kat Senses. It's a box of Kit Kat Senses. I've seen you eat that before we started. <laughs> I, was, I was hungry. Okay. <laughs> Congratulations to the winner of this year's Foodies Competition of Scotch Radio. Second year's Second, yeah, Apple Geely Jam. the same batch You're of jam. You're getting back. Josh Bertram's <laughs> making back. Right, okay. Far was with. Um, back to the programme. This is a bit of music for Lauren McCall's in her new album, The Seer. This is Loch Ussie.
Lorne McCall for her album The Seer. That was Loch Assey. And Lorne, again, is up for an award at the this year at Trad Awards. Now, back to the programme, when we were still in the Cairngorm Mountains, Alistair, you met up with writer and poet Alec Finlay and spoke about his new book. Tell us more about that. Aye, well, Alec's got this great new book out called Gathering. Unusually, this was a book commissioned by a hotel. For folk that have been to Braemar, though, Ken, there's two big hotels in Toon. In and the Fife Arms Hotel was a broad place, but was getting a bit old, getting a wee bit fished like your man Rich's jam. <laughs> <laughs> but there wasn't any the money in Braemar to redo the whole thing. Suddenly, out in a place, come two Swiss multi-millionaire art dealers. They cu- they'd been coming over to the Braemar area today, the hunting, stravagging the hills, gaining at the full moniker, the Glen Experience. And on a whim, they bought the Fife Arms and decided to day it up. But it's more than just a hotel. It's meant to be a hail cultural renaissance. So Alec Finlay's book was commissioned. He calls it an eco-poetic guide to the landscape. There's nae many folk bide new in Bremar and the area, but there's hunters and hunters of place names in Gaelic, English and Scots. They give you clues about the lives that folk have led there over the centuries and millennia. So what Alec's done is kind of our set the old Gaelic names into modern English so folk can understand the mentalities of the folk that used to bide there. I met with Alec at his house nae far from here. That's just along the road there in um, Meadow Bank. Oh, aye. And he's got this big, bonny view right over Arthur's seat, so he's eye looking at the kind of the rougher land. He's some boy. I sat down with Alec and he tells us all about the book. It's uh, what I call a place aware guide to the Cairngorms. So, place awareness is a term I've developed, which is primarily for me about place names and ecology and our relationship to the land. So I work particularly with a a wonderful book, uh, actually more than one book that Adam Watson did, Collecting Place Names. But to be honest, it's just a list of names. It's an index. And so what I've done is open that book out, take it out into, into the landscape and try and find out what those names tell us about how people used the land, saw the land, loved the land, related to the land. Um, so it's about a thousand years of relationship with, uh, with, with nature. The oldest names are always river names, uh, which I think is quite significant. It's not um, a, a town or a village. It's something where people were still walking through a landscape. After that, if you imagine that hunter-gatherers would need a particular kind of name and farmers would need another. But in that region, transhumance was crucial, shealings. So it wasn't just a settled farm, it was a winter town and a summer town. It's actually why May Day and Halloween are important because they mark the, the summering period. So sometime around then they'd take the cattle up the hill grow the crops in the valley around the good land where the spates happen, where you've got the good soil. So names always come out of use. So the up in the hills where you find a berry name or even a name to do with is a, a, a hill called the Wee Blossom Cairn. Probably they were only naming that because they were up there in the summer. Mm-hmm. So that tells you that where now is bare moorland, there were formerly people. There are actual names that become people it doesn't sound like, how does that work? Mona Gowan. Sounds like a woman. Mona Gowan. Well, Mona Gowan, a Gowan is uh, Scots for a, an ox-eye daisy. So you think, okay, that must be a hill with daisies on it. Actually, it's a Scots mishearing of Mona Gowan, the hill or the hilly land of the smith, the blacksmith. 
And often in the Highlands, blacksmiths were a very high class, almost aristocratic skill. So they'll be in very interesting places and they're, they will always be noted because everyone needed to know where the smith was. So in one place, you've got three things happening. You've got an original blacksmith, a forge. You've got a uh, oxide daisy. And you've got this woman that people imagine, Mona Gowan. A lot of your listeners will be lugging at this. Imagine yourself as some big booted manny <laughs> that's never done trampling about the Cairn Gorhams. And that this sort of book is for other sick-like folk. But really, you tell me that physically you're no way up to get into the tops of these hills. The secret reason for this book, and I don't always talk about this, but it is interesting, is that I've had ME since I was 21. So that's an illness that affects my legs. So I can't walk up hills. So there's something odd about me that I want to make this work. And someone once said to me, in a very rude way, they said, you'll never belong in nature. And it's a kind of challenge for me. And when you're disabled... It is difficult to know how to relate to wild places. And the way I started to do it, almost unconsciously, was using maps, finding a little hillock by the road, sitting down and understanding what the names meant. Uh, I started working with this idea, and I would call them conspectus. And the book has got conspectus in it, and all that is is a circle of names. So we did a lovely conspectus, which is the hills you see, from Nan Shepherd's house, which is at Tom and Tool, just above Braemar. And it's an incredible landscape, and when you list off the names, it adds something to it. So for me, names were a way I could climb a hill without climbing it. If I could sit there and look and think, that burn's called that, those trees are called that, somewhere up there there's a little ruin that's called that, somewhere over there there's a spring, it made me feel like I could relate to that landscape. And I realised that my own limit was making me have an interest that some people at hike might not have. And this is something I'm interested in, that constraint is creative. And one of the things we need to do in those landscapes is think about constraint. For instance, the relationship between deer and trees... Some places we need to think, are there too many people walking there? Uh, I'm interested in huts. Why aren't there more huts there? If there were more huts there, more ill people could spend time just being around a hut. Why are bothies always for people that are just walking a long way with smelly socks? Why is it that, that we have so many hill tracks in Scotland and they're never used for access for people that can't walk? Hill tracks are used for people that can walk who get driven up to shoot something. So it seems to me we've got some things topsy-turvy and those relationships are always about power. So the book is secretly about access and respect. It's about making a dialogue between the peasant farming culture, stalking culture, climbing culture, rewilding culture. I don't say or only a little bit, who's right and wrong. I have my preferences. But what I'm doing is trying to use the names to make that dialogue come alive because that is already such a political issue in Scotland. Maybe we need land reform, but more than the right to own land, we need the right to care for land. And care comes from knowing names. If a name says that this little glen used to be filled with juniper, then we'll ask, why isn't it? 
and how could we bring the juniper back? Alec, thanks a million. I'm sure there's work Gather, which is available now Gather through the publishers. Available now. available now in all good bookshops. I'm sure it'll enrich a lot of visitors and hopefully allow us to reinterpret our own landscape. Alec Finlay speaking about his book, The Gathering. And it's a cracker, bonny big book. Good idea for your Santa stocking up. And this is another twat for an award at the Trans in Perth. This is Ross Ainsley and Ali Hutton for their album Symbiosis. This is Hongu. Sensley and Ali Hutton with their album Symbiosis. And you can us. We're just about finished this edition of our Christmas special. I hope you've enjoyed the wanderings and their gallivants 
and thank you for your company and supporting us again. And my wish for Abdi is, I hope you get the Christmas that you want. And I wish we could rent a great big hall somewhere and invite you out to come to a party. Maybe some of you will do that. And on the subject of parties, thank you to BBC Radio Scotland for hosting their 40th birthday party the other day. In fact, a great time I had catching up with a lot of broadcasters. And a big thank you to Janice Forsyth for escorting us through all the blethers. For Denise. Right. I'll leave you with the voice of Gordon Hay, for I translated the New Testament into Doric. The us, Ali, Josh, Richie, me and the Scotch radio team. Keep warm. Are you ready, lads? Aye. One, two, three. Bye, Bye you. This is Gordon Hay with a Christmas story. A Gospel of Luke, Chapter 2 Now it come about at that time. The Emperor Augustus gave out an edict that the whole world should pay tax. S. was when Quirinius was governor of Syria. An Elka man get his own tune. And St. Joseph get up from Nazareth and Galilee to David's tune called Bethlehem in Judea to be taxed. You see, he was a David's folk. And he took with him his last Mary. Herod was expecting her first bairn. When they were in Bethlehem, her time came, and she had a wee loony, her allest sin. She whopped him up in clouts and laid him at the four-star, cause there was nae room for them at the lodging. Now, there was there about some shepherds out in the parks watching over the sheepies, when an angel of the Lord came to them, and the Lord's glory was sheening around them. They were terrified. But the angel says to them, Dinna be feared. A face squeed news till ye, and to a' the folk. Es for a day, in David's tune, your Saviour was born, Christ the Lord. And es will be your sign. You'll thin the bairnie wobbit up in clouts, and lying in a four-star. Ah, at eens there was a muckle colour shungy of the heavenly host, singing God's praises. Glory to God in highest heaven, and on earth peace, we'd well to our folk. After the angels had gone awa back to heaven, a shepherd said to one another, Come on, woman had strach to Bethlehem, and see for her sails what the Lord has tilt us about. See awa they hailed at a guid lick, and found Mary and Joseph with a bairnie lion in the four-star. And when they saw him, they tilt with they themselves had been tilt about as bairnie. And ah, it heard them were dumbfoonert with what the shepherds were saying. But Mary took until her breasty fit was said, and mind about it for long. And a wag the shepherds sing in God's praises for ah they had seen and heard. It had all happened just as they'd been dealt.